Amen. Please remain standing as I read this morning's text from Mark chapter 10. These are the words of Jesus. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. You can be seated. In 2015, the YouTuber Destin Sandlin, who has a channel called Smarter Every Day, made a video about a bicycle that works backwards. I want to show you a clip from that video this morning. Hey, it's me, Destin. Welcome back to Smarter Every Day. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill, and I was really proud of it. Everything changed, though, when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses, and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle, and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike, ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Sandlin. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it, but that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often, but I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're gonna try some trick or they're just gonna power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. How many of us think we could ride that bike? <clears throat> just being honest, okay? Yeah, uh, um, I think everyone who raised their hand is under the age of 20, uh, maybe younger than that. Um, we're going to talk about this morning the kingdom of God. And Jesus talks often about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And much of the way that he talks about it is what is, man, it feels paradoxical. It feels backwards uh, in our minds as opposed to how this world works and functions. In fact, the most common expression I've heard about what the kingdom is is that it is upside down. That's how it's often referred to, that Jesus introduces this upside down way of living as he walks the earth. It seems backwards in our minds because Jesus does not have the same success metrics as the rest of the world. Jesus does not have the same life goals as the world would prescribe them for us. Jesus introduces a brand new way of life. So much of the kingdom is antithetical to the human happiness that our world would prescribe for us. 
And those who live under the rule and reign of Christ belong to his kingdom. Yet at times I worry that our minds have become confused, that our thinking is clouded when it comes to what it means to live within this kingdom. See, I, I grew up in the 90s. Any other 90s kids in here? I've got a few. I grew up in the 90s, and so much of the religious experience in the 90s was defined by what you didn't do, right? Uh, we don't go there. We don't talk to them. We don't drink that, smoke that, touch that, like whatever it is. Like, that's what we don't do. Well, why? Because we're Christians, and so here's what we don't do. And it was all about what you would avoid instead of what you might attempt. And here's the thing. All of this was, was well-intentioned, I think. I think there was some, um, some nobility in it as parents tried to protect and, and keep their children from things. But I don't think it fully grasps what it means to live within the kingdom. See, Jesus comes to give us radical joy, a lasting peace, a life full of love, and many of those that I witnessed who were living in a countercultural way lacked these things. And in fact, they were fearful, bitter, they were easily enraged, they were skeptical about everything. Harry Potter's from the devil, right? They're judgmental, vindictive even at times. And rather than being full of the life-giving spirit of God that transforms a person, they simply made their ambition to be empty of the world. Rather than joyously engaging the hostility of the broken world around them, they would hunker down and identify these enemies that needed to be avoided. But the kingdom of God is not simply about being countercultural. The kingdom of God is a counterculture in and of itself. There is a difference. See, the first is simply a reaction to what is witnessed in the world, like a body that vomits up foreign contaminants. I don't want any part of this. The second, though, is a predisposition towards the things of Jesus. The kingdom is not just countercultural, it is its own counterculture. It is not a revolt against all that is in the world, it is a revolution built on all that is Jesus. To the world's angst, we present peace. To the world's anger, we display joy. To the world's hate, we show compassion. To the world's fear, we demonstrate love. To the world's me-first mentality, we say we're here to serve. That is a counterculture. And those who belong to the kingdom are convinced that the undoing of darkness that we see in the world happens by the shining of a great light. So this morning, we're going to look at what does it mean to step into this kingdom and how do we do it? We'll look at two sections of scripture. Um, the first is this portion of scripture in which Jesus is teaching and these parents begin to bring their, their kids to Jesus and Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And the second follows it and it's a story about uh, someone who we know to be the rich young ruler is how we often refer to him. But before we get there, I just want to kind of set the stage for how Mark starts um, chapter 10. We come to a fascinating few verses and in this beginning section, Jesus is challenged, and he has this teaching on divorce and remarriage. So this isn't our text for today. I don't want to spend too much time in it, but I think it helps set the stage. Jesus is challenged to answer a question regarding whether divorce is lawful. In the Old Testament, marriage was very much about the promulgation and the preservation of the family. You needed heirs, you needed sons to continue your family line, and so marriage functioned and looked different in most cases. Men often had multiple wives to ensure that this family line would continue. There was a highly volatile time in world history, and so this protection of women was basically non-existent. If a woman could not produce children for her husband, she was often discarded and another one would be taken. But Jesus rebukes this line of thinking, 
as he's challenged with this question of whether or not it's lawful to divorce a woman, he pushes back. He introduces a new way to think about marriage. The New Testament writers pick up on this line of thinking as they express what a marriage is supposed to represent. It is the same love that a husband has for his wife that Christ has for the church. So in this effort to entrap Jesus in a difficult question, something that was culturally accepted, Jesus pushes back. See, the Pharisees reflected this view that marriage was a disposable contractual arrangement. In other words, if I don't get what I want from you, I'll move on to the next. But Jesus invalidates that line of thinking. And in so doing, he is announcing that kingdom living for citizens of heaven means that we think about our relationships with one another differently. People are not products to consume. He is creating a counter culture, one that is not predicated on personal fulfillment, but on loving submission. Marriage for Jesus is not a contract that is disposable, but a covenant that displays Jesus' own love for the church. Jesus rebukes divorce. He calls it sinful and places high emphasis on the covenant bond of marriage. Our world today is not much different. In fact, I could launch into divorce statistics, hookup culture, uh, the dating scene, broken families, and so on. That's not our sermon today, so I will not preach it. But all we really need to take away is that all of these things are normalized in our world. All of those things I just listed are normal behaviors in our world today, but they should not be normal in the church. Jesus introduces a kingdom that is backwards. It's upside down, and he will keep expanding on that idea. And so here's where we pick up our text today, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, being Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such to such belongs the kingdom of God. This is like when a politician come to town, comes to town, everyone's like, hey, uh, kiss my baby. You know, maybe something good will come of this, or I can, you know. I, you ever really played that scenario out in your mind, like kid graduates from high school, you know, who kissed you on the forehead one time? You know, it was the city councilman from, you know, like, what? Doesn't make sense. Anyway, the disciples, they rebuke or scold the little children. It's, it's the Greek word epitomeo, to dishonor, to reprove, to rebuke. They're casting them aside. It comes from the same Greek uh, root as the, the Greek word time, which means honor, value, or price. It looks and reads like our word time. What the disciples are saying and what culture would affirm is that these children were valueless to Jesus. Hey, stop wasting Jesus' time. Doesn't have time for you. He's got more important things to do. He needs to be teaching. He needs to be healing. And you little kids who have nothing to offer him, you need to get out of his way. You parents, how dare you take up the time of Jesus by bringing your kids to him? He's far too important for this. Some of you might remember a, a YouTube video that circulated about a decade ago already. And it featured a character. Her name was Sweet Brown. And this was an interview. Her, Sweet Brown, her apartment complex had caught on fire. Some of you remember that? Okay, way more of you in second service than first service know what I'm talking about. And Sweet Brown is just launching in this story. It's one of these golden nugget, you know, local news interviews. And she's talking about, yeah, this building caught on fire and there's all this kind of smoke. And then she goes, I got bronchitis. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? That's what the disciples are saying, right? Hey, ain't nobody got time for that. Get them out of here. This is, Jesus' time is valuable. And this interaction leads Jesus to becoming what the Greek would say, agonakteo, 
And the ESV that we just read translates it correctly, indignant, right? So there's like mad, and then there's like mad, mad. Jesus is mad, mad. He is indignant. He is visibly frustrated, not with the children, but with his own disciples. Not just for keeping the children from coming to him, but for missing the forest for the trees. Like, listen, guys, you aren't getting it. So he expresses his anger, but he uses it as an opportunity to instruct them. In the kingdom counterculture, people are not measured based on what they can or can't provide. Let me say that again. In the kingdom counterculture, people are not measured based on what they can or can't provide. Value is found in serving or loving another person. So listen, here's here's what Jesus would say to us. A person can offer value to you based on how you might be able to serve, care, or minister to them. A person offers value to you based on how you can serve, care, or minister to them. But we witness the opposite in our culture. So many times we see the the popular, the wealthy, the important, this, this figure in our community, and everyone's trying to buddy up to this person. Everyone's trying to be the person that this person might call or talk to or be friends with, right? We, we try to position ourselves around people that are important. It is the opposite of what Jesus is expressing here. In the kingdom counterculture, the helpless, the vulnerable, the powerless, they're to be welcomed, embraced, and protected. Those who culture would discard, Christ defends. And here's what he says, truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This word receive is the Greek word dekamai. And really, the fullest expression is to accept, right? To accept or to receive, to welcome. And this idea of acceptance stands in stark contrast to our achievement-oriented culture. Hey, celebrate me, applaud me, look at me, tell me I'm pretty, look at all the good stuff I've done. Aren't I important? Aren't I cool? Aren't I good? But the kingdom of God arrives in our lives when we accept, not when we achieve. When we receive, not when we accomplish. Jesus announces that children such as these are heirs to his kingdom. And here you have a group of disciples who've been following Jesus around for some time, already thinking about where they fit in this hierarchy of importance. In fact, later on in this text, James and John will walk right up to Jesus and say, hey, we want to be really important, show us how. So here's the disciples, people that you think, oh yeah, they're important in God's kingdom, and Jesus is rebuking them in this moment, saying, listen, you will never be a part of my kingdom unless you receive it like these little children. Now, children in general, particularly little children, are often praised for their, their innocence, spontaneity, their humility. My, my daughter, my three-year-old Campbell, has no framework for time. She just doesn't understand it. Um, she doesn't understand the difference between yesterday and the day she was born. Uh, she doesn't understand the difference between this morning and the time that she gets up from nap. Like, it just doesn't make sense to her. Tomorrow and her birthday in November are on the same plane for her. She doesn't get it. So there's this this willful ignorance about her, this this gleeful joy that she just kind of walks around with every single day. I heard on a podcast a few weeks ago that we no longer have a a seven-day-a-week. We have a three-day week. We have yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's kind of what COVID did to all of us. That's how Campbell's lived her whole life. There's yesterday, there's today, and tomorrow, and those could mean any number of things. 
And here's, like, I love Campbell, and, and we have a lot of fun with her. Quick, can I tell a quick story? This is funny, so I'll tell a quick story. I didn't tell this in first service. You guys, you're welcome. Uh, a few months ago, uh, Bailey's dad's dad passed away. His name was Bob, and Bob was an incredible man, lived a, a life that was all about serving Jesus and worked with Team Expansion, a missions organization. And so we were honored to go celebrate his life at his funeral. And, and Campbell had really just met Bob a few weeks before he passed. And so um, he, he passes away, and, and Bailey then informs me, hey, it's your job to explain death to our barely three-year-old daughter. Great, thanks, babe. Um, and so I sit down, I'm thinking, okay, what context does she have for this? And she really doesn't have much, but she's seen Lion King. And so I began to explain to her, I said, Grandpa Bob passed away, he died. And, um, you know, like Mufasa, Mufasa dies, and Simba's sad, and she said, you know, she's just kind of pondering it. She doesn't really under, still understand death. So it's a few days later, and she's saying a prayer, and for, for Campbell, prayer is always thank you. God, just thank you. Even if someone's sick, she'll say something like, oh, God, thank you that mommy's sick, and it's like, we're getting there. So she's praying one day, and she says, um, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for Jesus, and thank you for my food, and thank you that Mufasa killed Grandpa Bob, and... So, you know, there's just things that don't connect. And so then we go, we go to his funeral, and my brother-in-law, Garrett, is kind of, you know, keep, we have three kids, and so it requires 18 adults to keep track of him. And so Garrett is, is tracking Campbell around in kind of the, you know, the pre-service time. And she walks up to this guy, this older gentleman who, you know, bless his heart, he's coming in, and, and he has an eye patch on and, and probably doesn't, doesn't have an eye. And so she just walks right up to him and looks at him are you a pirate? Why are you dressed like a pirate? And so in Campbell's mind, lions kill people, and that's why I have funerals, and when you go to a funeral, you dress like a pirate. I don't know. So it's just, there's a lot going on there. But here's, Campbell really just doesn't have a framework for time, and this past week, we went to the basketball banquet for the, the Fort Scott Tigers, and um, Bailey was out of town, and, and the twins were out of town, and so I told Campbell early in the week, I said, hey, daddy's going to take you to a banquet this weekend. She said, and she was so excited. I was like, okay, awesome. She gets it, something to look forward to. Of course, she, she thinks that means we're going right now. It's like, no, that's in a few days. A few days, we're going to go to this banquet. In the next few days, she announced proudly to the world, daddy's going to take me to the piggy bank. That's what she said. All over the place to all kinds of people. And for a little while, we had really had no idea what she was talking about. It's like, does she think like she's getting a bank account? Like, what? what's happening? I told her I would take her to the banquet, and she continued to call it the piggy bank even after we corrected her. And so here's a picture of Campbell and I. Um, immediately when I told her I was taking her there, she knew exactly what she wanted to wear. Um, she picked out her favorite Minnie Mouse dress, and uh, it's a necklace that uh, her yaya gave to her, and she wears that anytime dressing up is required. But in Campbell's mind, I tell her I'm taking her to the banquet, and she automatically thinks we're going to the piggy bank, and she doesn't understand that there won't be other people there wearing dress-up clothes, right? Like, it just doesn't compute for her. And there, There's something beautiful and spectacular about the innocence of a child. And that's where my mind was all week. And then I, I, I read this section of commentary, and I think this is important for us to hear today. Here's what J.R. Edwards says. It is often assumed that it is because of these qualities, right, this, this joy, this innocence, that Jesus commends these little children. 
It does not appear, however, that that is the reason, or at least the, the primary reason, why Jesus blesses the children. The emphasis in this belief, uh, excuse me, the emphasis in this brief story falls on the children themselves rather than on their virtues, real or imagined. The latter remain unidentified. The Greek word for little children is paida, which means very young or infants. And as Luke 18, the same story that Luke records, he would call them babies. The terminology, the terminology suggests that the children are below the age of accountability. Hence, it is not their virtue, but their helplessness that is stressed. If we assume that Jesus commends children because of their innocence, purity, or even spontaneity, then we must conclude that the disciples' acceptability in God's kingdom depends on similar virtues. But as Mark's depiction of the disciples makes repeatedly clear, that is exactly what they are not, nor are we. We are not innocent and eager, but slow, disbelieving, and cowardly. In this story, children are not blessed for their virtues, but for what they lack. They come only as they are, small, powerless, without sophistication, as the overlooked and dispossessed of, the, of society. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring. And whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. Little children are paradigmatic disciples, for only empty hands can be filled. We so often assume that we must put together our resume of righteousness, our, our reasons for worthiness, and bring them to Jesus and say, hey, look how, look how good I've done, look, I, I've earned this, I deserve it, that we can somehow prove based on our merit that we deserve God's love. But God's great love is not hunting down those who posture themselves as perfect candidates. It's chasing those who are willingly ready to admit their own frailty and futility. Jesus is saying this assumption that you have something that you can offer in exchange for the eternal life that I can give and gain entrance into the kingdom, it's the very mindset that's pushing you out. See, in order to step into the kingdom, you need no credits, no clout, no claims. We need to become childlike in the sense that we are utterly dependent upon Jesus. The truth is we're more childish than we are childlike. Childish means living with a me-first mentality. This is part of our post-Christian culture as we are now living in today. But, but post-Christian doesn't mean that Christianity is totally absent. What it means is that in today's society, we want the kingdom without the king. Uh, another way of thinking about it is we want all of the vocabulary without the dictionary. We want the love, the joy, the peace, the, the justice that comes only from God, but we do not want his lordship in our lives. So much of what is preached in our culture today is borrowed from the Bible, yet it lacks the transforming power of Jesus to see it made manifest in the lives of people. In a post-Christian culture, our purpose is all about pleasure. Our existence is all about being entertained. All of our meaning, just it comes from me. Whatever feels right is right. Whatever I think or feel is true, that must be true for me. It may not be true for you, it's true for me. This is childish, and when we live childish lives, we tend to fall into some things that are very problematic. We conflate something like love with lust. We mistake ideology for theology. We, we confuse career for calling, and we build our kingdoms instead of expanding his. 
See, in, in post-Christian culture, we've made this exchange. We've exchanged authority for authenticity. See, authority comes from a place that, that is external. We submit to something or someone else. But in our world today, our authority is just simply found in authenticity. This is the true me. This is my truth. This is what I choose to live into. Before we go patting ourselves on the back, this isn't just an out there issue. This isn't something that only happens outside the walls of the church because whatever's happening in culture creeps into the pews. Childish behavior plagues the church. Friends, we, we lack the capacity for true commitment. Statements like, I just didn't feel like going to church today. We, we might misunderstand our call to carry the cross that's someone else's responsibility. They'll, they'll take care of it. They're better at it. They get paid to do it. You know. We might skip out on sacrificial living and giving. Ah, when they start doing some things that I like, then I'll write a bigger check. Author and preacher John Tyson, he says this, if we were to look at the current life of the average American churchgoer, their lives don't seem to be much different from anyone else's. If anything, the people who attend church seem to have lives that closely resemble the rest of the country. One reason for this disparity is that we as Christians have lost track of the gospel, the message of the good news. We are like a group of children playing telephone in which the secret message at the end of the line sounds nothing like the initial message. Here's how he would go on to give us a definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of His great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin, Satan, death, and hell, and to renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, to establish His kingdom through His people and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is for God's great glory and our profound joy. Jesus says we must receive in childlike fashion totally and utterly dependent upon God, not interjecting our own ideas about what might merit ultimate happiness, but trusting in the all-powerful, all-sustaining God who knows our inmost thoughts and understands our deepest longings even better than we do. If we're going to step into the kingdom, we cannot be childish. We must be childlike. Moving on to our, our next section of text, starting in verse 17, Jesus has this interaction with a man that we call the rich young ruler. Here's what he says. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So right away, we need to pick up on this, that this, this guy, the rich young ruler, he asks a good question. And he asks it of the right person. It's a question worth our pondering this morning. No one else in all of Galilee, including Jesus' own disciples, asked him a question this important. This is an essential question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But there's a fatal flaw in his presupposition. See, the answer is in the assumption. He says, what must I do? What must I do? You can do nothing. God can do anything. I love Ephesians chapter 2, especially verses 1 through 10, and I, I want to read just a couple verses. This is from the message. Here's what he says. Saving is all his idea, meaning God's, and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. 
No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work that he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work that we had better be doing. See, it's all Jesus from start to finish. Jesus is the only one who can save anyone. And here's the good news. He's available to everyone. But for you and me, much like this young man, it's hard to leave what we know for what we need. See, here's what this guy knew. He knew that he could be successful, that he could accumulate and stockpile and build up his portfolio and have wealth. He also knew that he could play by the rules and make sure that everyone witnessed and and he could demonstrate his own righteousness and get it all right. He, man, that guy never missed a day in his YouVersion Bible reading plan. That's funny, but okay. And Jesus asks him this really important question. He says, why do you call me good? He wants to press pause on the conversation and force this man to think about the person he's asking the question of. Sometimes that's more important than the question itself. Does Jesus have authority? If the one whom is asked the question holds authority, then the answer is to be obediently followed no matter the cost. See, Jesus is saying, no one is good but God, so either you're saying that I'm God, or I'm not worth listening to. If you're going to say I'm a good teacher, either I'm the good teacher who holds authority and you should be obedient, or you're going to dismiss what I say. That is a worthy question for us this morning. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the good teacher? Meaning, is he God? Because no one is good but God. And does he have authority in your life? And when you hear his commands, are you receiving them well? In contrast to the little children, here's a man who has accumulated much. He's profited greatly in this life. He's moral. He's genuine. He is good by every worldly metric. Yet he recognizes his lack. We sometimes place our own dependency on our morality. But friends, no matter how hard we try, no one is good enough for God. Here's what Jesus will lead him to, that it is theology, not morality, that is the means to eternity. It is not what we do, it is who we trust. Many of you will remember a story that took the world by storm in 2018. There was a soccer team, a Thai soccer team that... Um, was adventuring uh, in the northern parts of Thailand, and they had made their way back into this uh, intricate cave system. And while they were back there, uh, water began to pour in from all different places. It was raining, and floods began to come, and so they made their way further and further back into the cave to avoid the water. And so they were, they were lost by all accounts, and, and they assumed that they were in this cave, and they began this uh, over 10-day-long process of trying to find where these boys are and figure out how they might rescue them. And there were all these different um, groups and agencies that came in. The Thai Navy SEALs played an incredible role. There were other foreign military groups that came in to try to assist and help. And there, there was just all this hysteria really around the world. Elon Musk was like, listen, I will build a submarine <laughs> to, to get back in there and save these boys. And so really what it came down to, though, is these two crazy people. Uh, Their their names are are Rick and John. This is Rick up here on the left, and this is John right here. And they they belong to a very unique kind of fraternity. They're cave divers. Um, They do stupid stuff. 
okay? Um, they do the kinds of things where if it didn't kill you, your mom was going to kill you if you did it kind of thing. Rick actually um, holds the world record um, for the deepest cave dive, and when he wanted to attempt this, the equipment that he needed did not exist, so he made his own. That's a different level of crazy, okay? Um, and so Rick and John are confident that they can accomplish this rescue. They have no, no special training, right? They're not, they're not special forces in the military. They're not even like prestigious people in their own uh, community. They're, they just, they know how to dive in caves. And so Rick and John begin to like push, hey, let us in there. Let us in there. We can go find these kids. We can save them. And they begin this adventuring. You'll see this is two and a half miles from the cave entrance to where the boys are trapped. And eventually they make their way to these boys and they find them and, and they're, they're all alive and they're actually doing okay. And then they're like, great, we found them. How do we get them out? And they tried all these other ways, like maybe we can drill in from the top, maybe we can figure out something else, and, and eventually they realize, like, the water's not going anywhere, and actually the water's rising, and as the water rises, it's not just a threat of drowning, but it's sucking the oxygen out of the cave. So these boys are, are going to suffocate even if they don't drown, and so really our only option is to dive the boys out of there. And so they begin to call in all their buddies, the other super crazy, insane people that they know who do this kind of thing. And there's about a dozen of them, and they, they get them all together at the, at the entrance to the cave, and they, they begin to swim back. And, and one of the guys was Dr. Richard Harris. Um, I believe he's a doctor in, in New Zealand, and he's also a cave diver. And Dr. Richard Harris they, they, comes up with the plan to, um, to administer some drugs to these boys to basically render them unconscious so that they can swim them out. Because here's what they realize. Um, almost all of us would have a severe panic attack trying to do this. We're talking about passageways this big that you're pulling yourself through. Uh, you can't see anywhere, can't do anything. It's like, it's, it's going to be 30 seconds and they're just going to freak out and die. And so what they decided they needed to do is they gave each boy a Xanax and then they injected them with ketamine. And here's the other crazy part of what they did is they gave more ketamine to all the divers and said, hey, uh, when they start to come to, right, so when you make it to one of these places that you can actually surface, um, I know you've never administered any drugs before, but you're going to need to take a shot out, stab it in their leg, and make them go back unconscious again. It's craziness. Here's the fascinating thing about this for me. Most of us operate in the two is better than one philosophy, right? Like, yeah, if there's two horses pulling, they can pull significantly more weight than a single horse, more than double, right? But it actually helped that the boys were helpless, if they did anything at all, it would have messed everything up. They needed them to be unconscious, floating, just basically buoyant figures that they could push through these caves and swim them out in a matter of five or six hours. Friends, this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Here's a man who assumes he's got it all together. I've got this all figured out. I've done all the right things. I, I, I've, I've established some worldly success. I've established some spiritual success. And look at me. Aren't I doing a good job? Jesus, I'm really just here for an affirmation and an attaboy. Tell me I've done a good job. And Jesus is like, listen, everything you've done is worthless. You, you lack something, buddy. You lack something. Here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus looked at him. And loved him. Said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. 
and then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here it is. This is the sermon in a sentence this morning. If you're going to walk away with something, this is it. The greatest enemy to your eternity is your own autonomy. The greatest enemy to your eternity is your own autonomy. That idea of autonomy is self-governance, self-determining ability. I, I have the power. I have the ability. I can accomplish it. I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I've built a successful business, and I've, I've raised my family well. All these different kinds of things that we could point to and say, look how good I've done. Jesus says, mm, that's the very thing that will keep you out, is the belief that you can accomplish and, and where it gets tricky is Jesus tells this guy to go sell all his stuff, and that's the part where we're like, blah, 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 didn't hear that, don't want to sell anything. It's a wiggle passage, because we want to wiggle our way out of it. Like, like we want to pretend we aren't the ones who need to hear or receive this, and yet we are so desperately dependent upon these empires that we've built for ourselves. All that we've accumulated, right, we've built up things to insulate and ensure our lives against an undesirable fate. Did you catch what Jesus does, though? He looks at him, and he loves him. Here's a guy who's doing everything he knows how to do, right? According to every standard, he is following it to a letter of the law. And this Greek word, emblepo, means to look at, look at intently. Essentially, what it's saying is Jesus is reading his thoughts. He's reading his mind in this moment. He can examine his heart. He can stare into his eyes and see all the way down to his soul. And he realized... I need to lovingly explain to this guy that everything he's built for himself is worth nothing. See, the attaboy would have been an easy and accepted thing to do in that culture, just like it would for us. Here's a model citizen who has arrived at this pinnacle of success, but Jesus, because he loves him, tells him the truth. One thing you lack. This guy didn't lack anything. He had everything he ever wanted. But your everything isn't anything until Jesus is the only thing. He asked Jesus about the future, but Jesus points him to the present. Hey, right now, you need to go sell everything you have and then come follow me. You need to, like a child, develop this daily dependence upon me. So when are we responsible? Because Maybe like me, you hear this text again and again, you're like, okay, when do I need to respond to this? Do I have some time? Like, can I just wait a few decades? Can I, can I just get to a point where I feel safe and secure and everything's fine and then, like, then I can respond to this call of Jesus? When are we responsible to respond to the call of Jesus? Here it is, at the moment we hear the call. It's not easy. Jesus his call always presents great cost to us, but this is the measure of our faith. Do we trust that God is good? Do we trust that redirecting our dependence away from what is achieved and towards what can only be received is a destiny that is more desirable? Sell everything you have and then come follow me. Jesus informs him that all his effort to hedge his bets have fall, has fallen short. He had tried to attain salvation through two different means, one through accumulation, the other through validation, one by collecting enough resource, the other through convincing himself of his own righteousness. Yet Jesus says this has led to his lack. 
Friends, we do this often, don't we? I'm so guilty of this. We try to, to diversify our portfolio of destiny. We dare not place all our eggs in one basket. How foolish. Like, like, we like the church thing, and like we're pretty sure we know who God is, and we believe in him, but I mean, who could really be sure? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I've got some other backup plans going on over here. We've got to hedge our bets against things that mm, we can't really be certain or sure of. But it is the weight of these words that moves us into obedient discipleship. Because Jesus is not, hmm, he's either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. Either he has the authority to speak into our lives in this very moment and say, go sell everything, seriously, and come follow me. Anything that stands in the way of you trusting me completely, you need to get rid of it. A call to discipleship involves a cost of discipleship. And here's what Jesus expresses to this man. All that you've accumulated serves more as an obstacle than an asset when it comes to your attempt to attain a life that lasts. How many of us earnestly approach Jesus, desiring what he can offer, and yet we depart defeated because his call costs us something? He went away sad because he had great wealth. And we think about that like great wealth, that's, that's the pinnacle of all we strive to. This is what our lives are pursuing is why we've worked our careers and, and sweat and, and, and put in blood to all of like we've worked so hard to have this and we assume that wealth is the great opportunity provider. Here's what allows me to have all the opportunities I want. I can go vacation wherever I want. I can drive whatever I want. I can live wherever I want. My kids can do whatever I want them to be able to do or whatever they want to be able to do. We assume that wealth is the door to opportunity. And Jesus, because the kingdom is backwards and upside down, he says, it's not an opportunity. It's an obstacle. Because you're trusting in all that you've accomplished rather than what you can only accept. We can't imagine a life that leads in the opposite direction of the success that we have self-defined. We have a hard time trusting Jesus that leaving stuff in the background leads to a better future. But there's no salvation in accumulation. The greatest enemy to your eternity is your own autonomy. And here's how Jesus finishes this teaching to his disciples. He looked around and said to them, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. I want to play for you Another clip from this video we started with. So here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck, but at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically, and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. 
I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you going to give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up. You got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he, in how many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? In two weeks, he did something that took me eight months to do, which demonstrates that a child has more neuroplasticity, am I even saying that right, than an adult. It's clear from this experiment that children have a much more plastic brain than adults. That's why the best time to learn a language is when you're a young child. Eight months for him, two weeks, less than two weeks for his son. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here's, here's the crazy thing. All of us wish we could be younger or go back or have redos or figure things out. And while Destin will never be able to be his son's age again and learn how to ride a bike that way, here's what Jesus seems to believe. Jesus seems to believe we can. Jesus teaches us this. You can become childlike again. You can, in total faith and dependency upon God, find yourself at a point where you say, there's nothing I can do to achieve this. I can only accept it. And it is much easier to learn the language of the backward, upside-down way of Jesus. With childlike faith, with trust, with total dependence, with this belief that God is good and he's leading me towards what is better than it is to sit in our seats and say, ah, I don't buy it. I, I'm not sure if I get it. It's hard for us. Those of us who have lived a lot of life and had a lot of experiences and been shaped and informed, right? We have to unlearn a lot or we can just say, God, help me to have childlike faith. I don't have anything to offer you. I don't have anything to bring you. I just want to receive. Jesus seems to believe we can get to that point again. We can become like children and we can accept in faith all that Jesus has done for us. Let's stand and worship together.